Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so I don't know if you guys remember where we've been. It's, we've, we've had so many cancellations because of snow, so we're finally back. And so we are looking at the order of salvation, how God saves sinners. And our key verse has been Romans chapter 8. Oh, you know what, Trina? I forgot the clicker. And, yeah, I realized as I'm starting to click I don't have a clicker. <laughs> I don't know what it means to click, but I don't have a clicker. Mercy buckets. All right, so Romans, I think this is on a slide. So, all right. So Romans 8, if you guys have your Bible, let's turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And this is the kind of the key verse we've been coming back to every week. And it says, Those whom he predestined, he also called... And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so we're talking about the order of salvation. And the first thing is that those whom he predestined. So God, in eternity past, uh, predestined us before the foundation of the world to be saved. God set his love upon us. He foreknew us. He predestined us. Then we talked about what total depravity means, that we can't come to faith in Christ because we're dead in sin. Does this keep cutting in and out on you guys? Um, I wonder why. It didn't do that Sunday morning, did it? I wonder if I'm in a dead spot. Um, I'll just keep going, and we'll do the best we can. So you can't come to faith in Christ because you are in bondage to sin. You're spiritually unable to. So God has to do a supernatural work. So God has to call you. Those whom he predestined, he called. There's two types of call. There's the external call that goes out to all people. Everybody hears that. Like on a Sunday morning when I'm preaching, I'm preaching to everybody. I don't know who's been chosen, who's not. God does, but I put the call out. You put the call out. Then there's the internal call. The internal effectual call that call actually goes into your heart, it goes into your soul, it makes you alive in Christ, and then you put your faith in Jesus. So what we're going to talk about tonight is you putting your faith in Jesus. So let's just look at a few verses that remind us of this. So John 6 teaches almost all these doctrines in one passage of Scripture. So John 6, 37-39, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Okay, we've talked about this numerous times. The Father has given to the Son, Jesus, a group of people before the foundation of the world. That group of people we call the elect or the chosen. God gave them, and what does it say? They will come. Okay, but... Further down in that chapter, John 6, it says no one can come. Well, why can't we come? Well, because the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You have to be drawn by the Father to come to Jesus. 
you have to be granted by the Father to come to Jesus. John 6, 65 says, that is why my Father, oh, that is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So the Father has to draw you. The Father has to grant you. The Father has to call you. And once he does that, then you personally come to faith in Christ. So let's backtrack. You're chosen before the foundation of the world. At a point in time, the Holy Spirit calls you, draws you, enables you, gives you the gifts of repentance and faith, and then you come in faith. Another passage that teaches all of this kind of together is 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-14. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning. Okay, so there's the choosing. God chose you from the beginning for what? For salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this that he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you were called through the gospel to have faith in Jesus. And when that call came to you, because you were chosen, you said yes. And you personally believed and repented. Why did you do that? Because you were called. Why did you do that? Because you were chosen. Those whom he foreknew he chose, or those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and those whom he predestined, he also called. So, what we're going to talk about tonight is conversion. This is the theological term for conversion. What does it mean to be converted? What is conversion? So, it involves two, two aspects, okay? So, I'm going to give you both aspects, and we're going to talk about both of these tonight. So, true conversion is embracing Jesus Christ as he's freely offered to us in the gospel. So it means believing, trusting, resting, accepting Jesus, whatever words you want to use, anything related to placing your faith in Jesus. But there's also another aspect of conversion. It's a flip side. It's, it's, it's kind of the two sides of the same coin. True conversion also involves turning from sin in repentance and turning to Christ in faith. So Repentance and faith, faith and repentance, repenting, believing, trusting. This is what it means to come to faith in Christ. This is what we mean by conversion. So tonight we're going to talk about what is faith, saving faith, and what is repentance. Okay, so everything that we've looked at up to this point has been God's work. Okay, who chose you? Did you choose yourself? No, God chose you. Did you call yourself? No, God called you. But did you personally believe? Yes, you personally believed. You personally put your faith in Christ. You personally repented. So what does that mean? What, what happens when you trust Jesus for salvation? So we're going to start tonight with faith. What is genuine faith? Okay, so we're going to look at our confession of faith our church's confession of faith, because I think our church's confession of faith gives very good definitions of saving faith. Now, this comes from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. So this has been a confession of faith that's been around for a long time, held to by Reformed Baptists for, since the 1600s. So, you know, over 400 years, Baptists have understood this. And so... Um, 
this is the first kind of definition of faith. Faith is the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. Okay? This is where you are enabled by grace to believe. Now, I'm going to say something that a lot of people don't necessarily quite understand or, or actually believe, but it's something the Bible teaches, and we're going to talk about that. Your faith was not your own. It was the gift of God. Now, you actually believed. God didn't believe for you. The Holy Spirit didn't believe for you. But the reason you believed is because God gave you the ability to believe as a gift of grace when the Holy Spirit did a work in your heart. So, Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What comes first, being appointed to eternal life or believing? You're appointed to eternal life first, and then you believe because you've been appointed to eternal life. Now, you believed... You placed your faith in Christ, but again, the reason you did that was because you were appointed to eternal life, you were chosen. Now, what did God do in you? What is this thing that happened in you? Okay, what was your condition before you were saved? Ephesians 2, 4-9. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead... In our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. You were spiritually dead, and God made you spiritually alive by grace. For we have been saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What's, your, what's not your own doing? What is the gift of God? That's been a big debate over the years. What is Paul saying there in verses 8 and 9? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Well, what is the it that's the gift of God? What is the this that's not your own doing? Is it salvation? Is it grace? Is it faith? Now, there's many arguments from many different people throughout the, the, the ages. Here's the way I take it. I think it's the whole package. Yes, Salvation is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Grace, by its very definition, is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. But faith, some people would say, okay, salvation is something I don't do. Grace is something I don't do. But faith is the one thing I do. It's the one thing I contribute. Yes, you had faith, but it was a gift of God given to you. So even your ability to believe in Jesus was a gift of God. So faith is a gift that comes to you 
when God makes you alive or when God raises you to spiritual life or when God takes out your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. He gives you the gift of faith. Okay? Philippians 1.29 teaches that as well. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ Jesus that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted for you to believe. You've been given the gift to be able to believe. So let's ask the question, why can't you believe? What did Jesus say? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Why can't you believe? Let's ask it a different way. Do you just wake up one day and have libertarian free will to say, I'm going to believe in Jesus? The Bible says no, because you're in bondage to sin. You're dead in your sin. You're a slave to sin. You cannot do that unless God first makes you alive. And when God makes you alive, when God causes you to be born again, when God does that effectual call, He gives you faith. I've given this illustration many, many times before about your natural birth. Okay. Did you cause yourself to be born? Did you even cause yourself to be conceived? You weren't even around. You, were, you may have been an idea in your parents' head, but it hadn't happened yet. So what happens when you're born? Do you cry out to your mom to get you to be born? No. But what happens once you're first born? What happens when you come out? What's the first thing you do? You cry. So you're born first and then you cry out. Okay, it's no different in your spiritual birth. You are born again first and the first thing you do is you cry out in faith to Jesus. Now it's imperceptible to you because you don't, it, it happens in deep in your soul. From your experience, you're just placing your faith in Jesus. But from God's perspective, he's doing that deep work in you to make you come alive and he's given you that ability to do that. So you're still believing. God doesn't believe for you, but he gives you that as a gift. Okay, so, so first of all, faith is a gift. It's a sovereign gift of God by grace where he enables you because you're dead in sin to be able to place your faith in Christ because no one can come to Jesus unless you're drawn. And God draws you, God calls you, God enables you through sovereign grace. But also faith is a conviction in the truth of God's word and the gospel. So you, if you're going to believe in Jesus, not only is it a gift of God, but you have to have a firm conviction that God's word is true and that you believe the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So there has to be some knowledge and some truth that you are believing. Um, you don't have to know all the answers, but you have to believe that God's word is true and that Jesus is who he says he is. Okay, 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul says, This is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed for I know, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I know whom I believe. I'm firmly established, and I know who I believe. I have a solid confidence in, in Jesus and his word. Okay. But faith also involves committing or entrusting ourselves totally to Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, to receive Him. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But here's some passages that talk about receiving, trusting, resting, accepting, whatever words you want to use. So John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive Him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of the flesh, who were born not of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So who all, who, for all who did receive him, who believed in him. So receiving Jesus, believing in Jesus. Okay, uh, another terminology the Bible uses in Acts 16, 30-31, the Philippian jailer, they brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what do they tell him? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe. Place your faith. Trust. Receive. And then probably one of the best verses that talks about this is Romans 4, 4 4-5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. Now let's talk about that passage for a moment. Verse 4 goes against conventional wisdom on how the world works. When you go to work, what do you do? You get paid, right? Anybody want to work 40 or 50 hours a week, and then it's time for your paycheck to come, and your boss gives you your paycheck, you said, no, I kind of just want to work for free this month. Keep it. Anybody say that? Unless you're feeling really generous. No, when you work, what do you deserve? You're due. You deserve your wages. Okay, in the world, and, and, and we, we expect that because you want to work hard and you, you deserve to get paid what you put in. In God's economy, that's not how it works. Now, that's how we think it works. If I do something, if I work hard enough, then God is obligated to pay me back with salvation. Or God is obligated to pay me back by forgiving my sins or accepting me. That's not how it works. Notice what Paul says there in verse 5. To the one who does not work. Instead, what do we do? We believe. And, and who are we when we're believing? We're ungodly. Do you have to clean yourself up in order to become a Christian? Got to make sure you clean yourself up to become godly enough in order for Jesus to accept you. No, you can't clean yourself up enough. You come as an ungodly, unrighteous sinner, and you simply trust, receive, rest in what Jesus has done. You call upon his name. So let's turn to Romans. Your, your Bible should be open to Romans 8, hopefully, still. Just turn over two chapters to Romans chapter 10. You guys have that? Romans 10 9 through 17. So let's just read this about faith. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The primary way God births faith in you is through the preaching of the word. 
Now that could be from me on a Sunday morning preaching and you're out in the congregation unsaved and you hear it go in your ears, but then the Holy Spirit does a work in your heart and you confess and you believe. It could be listening to a podcast preacher. It could be reading your Bible. The primary way, really, faith comes by hearing. You've got to hear the gospel so that you can understand your need for a Savior. All right, let's keep going. Um, The second London Baptist Confession defines faith as follows. Let me just read it to you. The principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by the virtue of the covenant of grace. Grace, I want you to think about those three words they use in our confession. Accepting, receiving, and resting. Accepting, receiving, and resting. Not working, not trying, not achieving or trying to accomplish. It's a receiving. Okay, what is faith? Faith is an empty hand that's sinful that says, I have nothing to give, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. It's an empty hand reaching out to receive salvation. You have nothing to offer God. You're just offering Him your sin, and you're reaching out with empty hands to receive the gift of salvation. It's a receiving. It's a resting. It's a trusting. Okay, so let's talk about the Baptist Catechism that we do every Sunday morning. We'll get there eventually. The question in the Baptist Catechism, uh, this question is, what is faith in Jesus Christ? What is faith? So this is how the catechism, what we teach children. So what's the answer? Okay, kids, let's all say it together like we do on Sunday. I'm not going to make you do that like we do on Sunday morning. So what is faith in Jesus Christ? Answer, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. Again, receiving and resting. Maybe about two, two R words. I want you to remember, receiving and resting. I've often said this, saving faith is not an achieving, it's a receiving. What's the difference between, it, what's something you achieve? Is salvation or faith something you achieve? I worked for it, I achieved it, I did it, I, com- I, I contributed to it. There's something I can get credit for. No, it's not. Faith in Jesus Christ is a receiving. You're receiving Him and all of His benefits and everything He is, you're receiving into your life. And then you're resting. What's the opposite of resting? Working, striving, trying. Every other world religion does not have those two words. Receiving and resting. Every world religion, every other type of spiritual system has what? What must I do to be right with God or right with my deity or right in my spiritual balance? I have to do something. I have to put in the work. And then if I do enough, then maybe I can hope that I've done enough to be accepted. But at the end of the day, I really don't know. I, I hope, I try, I'm putting forth a lot of effort, but I, I, I can never really know. Faith in Christ says, no, all that stuff is not necessary because he did all the work. Okay, every other world religion says do. Christianity says done. Jesus did it all. 
He paid it all. And we receive Him and what He has done for us. So, Jesus is, Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking to Jesus. He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. So who, who, who found our faith? Who started our faith? Jesus. Who finishes our faith? Jesus. Do we start our faith? No, Jesus does. And he finishes it. Now, one of the things that you need to understand is that in saving faith, or even faith that you have after you're a Christian, we can have degrees of faith, weak or strong. But the weakest faith of a justified believer saving faith because God does not save you on the intensity of your faith or the amount of your faith. Are you even saved by faith? Faith is the instrument by which you're saved, but who are you ultimately saved by? Christ. So your faith is not in your faith. Your faith is not in how intense you can be for Jesus. Your faith is not in how committed you can be. Your faith is in Jesus. So your faith, it could be very weak, but it's the object of your faith that's important, and the object of your faith is Jesus. Now, let's ask a very interesting question. And maybe this is something that you've thought about with your small children, or maybe your children are kind of at that age where they're thinking about salvation, or maybe you've had this discussion before. The question is, how much does one have to believe to be saved? Because you can have a faith as a child. So how much does one have to believe? Okay? So what I'm going to share with you, I got from a book. So this is not my own stuff, so I'm not plagiarizing. I'm letting you know. Um, this is a book by a guy named Michael Whitmer. It's a book called Don't Stop Believing. Um, it's an older book, but it's called Don't Stop Believing. It kind of sounds like the, the Journey song. I don't know if he did that because of the Don't Stop Believe. But he, he gives kind of a good... I don't know if I agree with everything in this book, but I think he gave a pretty good template here of like this whole question, what does one have to believe in order to be saved? Now, we're talking about being saved, not like you've been a Christian for 10 years. This is like saving faith, like what must you, you type of faith do you need to have to be saved? Okay, so what one must believe? Okay, so this is like the non-negotiables. This would be kind of like what we would call the dogma. What one must believe? Okay, so you have to believe this in order to be saved. And he say, number one, I am a sinner under God's wrath and deserve hell and judgment. If you don't realize you're a sinner, that you deserve God's wrath and you deserve hell and that you are a sinner, you have to believe that. Because then why would you need salvation if you're not a sinner going to hell needing salvation? You have to believe that. And then number two, he says, only Jesus saves me from sin and I must repent and place my faith in him. Okay, so you have to believe that. So two big things. I am a sinner under God's wrath. Number two, Jesus is the only way of salvation to save me from that. If you don't, if you don't confess that, you have to have that as part of the equation. Okay? Now, that's what you must believe. Now, he, he frames the second thing, what one must not reject to be saved. Okay? So this is what 
Not that you have to believe these, but you can't reject these. You may not know all of the intricacies of these doctrines, but you can't reject these. So, number one, you can't reject the Trinity. You may not understand all about the Trinity, but you have to believe that God is one in essence and three distinct persons that are co-equal and co-eternal. It's kind of a dogma that you have to believe the Trinity. You can't reject the deity and humanity of Christ. You have to believe that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he's fully God and fully man. And you can't deny the historical truth and significance of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and return. So, for example, I had a guy that was coming to church, baptized his wife. This was back in the old building, so this was probably around 2006-ish, maybe they were coming for a couple of months. His wife got really excited about Jesus, came into my office, shared her profession of faith, got baptized. Um, her husband was coming, and he wanted to meet with me. So he set up an appointment to come into my office and talk to me. And um, I was sharing with him the gospel, and, and this was the words he said. He says, can I be a member of your church if I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And I said, no, you can't. I said, as kind as I can tell you. He said, I believe, he said, I believe Jesus is a good teacher and he's a good example, but I don't believe he's the son of God or he's divine. And I said, well, that's an essential that our church believes. That's an essential of Christianity. You have to believe that in order to become a Christian. So don't, let's not even talk about joining the church. Let's talk about salvation. And he's like, I'm not, I don't buy that. And I kept sharing it with him. Well, after a while, he and his wife, they, they've never come back to church since. I've had that conversation with him. I see him around town. I see him. We've got a great relationship. I'll say hi to him. But from that day, I mean, I was pretty honest with him. I mean, it's not an issue if you can't join the church. You can't become a Christian if you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. So you can't reject the deity of Christ, the Trinity, all those things. Now, here's the third thing. This is where it gets a little bit what one should believe okay now i'm thinking of children here or i'm thinking the people that are just brand new saved you can still be saved without knowing all the theology about these issues but if you're truly saved hopefully you're going to want to grow in these and you're going to quickly embrace these and you're going to be discipled to where you're you're going to grow in these okay so you should believe in the sovereignty of god you should believe that humans are created in the image of God. You should believe the nature of the church, the biblical story of creation, the Bible of God's, I mean, the Bible is God's inspired word. Now, you may not understand fully all of the intricacies of that, but those should be things that when you become a Christian, because your heart's been changed, you want to learn what the Bible says. Okay? Let me just ask you a question. If you've truly been saved, I mean truly been saved, has God so changed your heart that you want to learn? Or are you going to be resistant like, don't tell me what to believe because I've already got it all figured out? Or are you going to be like, what does a baby do? When you, what is a ba- how does a baby get nourishment? It drinks milk. And baby Christians need sustenance. They need, they need to be constantly be given milk. And then later on, they can be given solid food. Um, but if you don't have any desire for God's word or God's truth as a newborn Christian, you may need to question whether you're truly saved. Okay?
Now, throughout church history and as well as the Bible, um, we've seen saving faith be defined in three big categories. And we're going to call this cat, okay? K-A-T, not the, not the little feline. So I want you to remember these um, so the first one, so we're talking about what is saving faith? What is faith in Jesus? How does a person exercise faith in Christ? So first is knowledge. This involves your mind. Okay? In order to be saved, you have to understand with your mind the facts of the gospel. You've got to know that Jesus died on the cross. You've got to know you're a sinner. You've got to know he rose again. You've got to know just information. You've got to know what the Bible says about you as a sinner, what the Bible says about Jesus. You've got to have your mind involved in understanding truths. But that's not enough. As a matter of fact, the Bible says the demons believe and shudder. So there's people that can have intellectual knowledge of biblical facts and not be saved. So just because you have knowledge doesn't mean you are saved, but you have to have knowledge in order to be saved because you've got to know what you're being saved from, the wrath of God, your sin, and what you're being saved to, and that's a relationship with Christ. So you need to have knowledge. Okay. The second thing, it takes it a step further. You've got to have assent. If you don't like the word assent, conviction. Okay. This is more related to your heart. Okay. Knowledge is in your mind. I believe this to be true because I've gotten the information in my mind. Assent means, okay, this is where it's making sense to me personally. It's moved beyond, hey, this is great information to, I need to think about this. I personally need to place my faith in Christ. I'm agreeing. I'm under conviction. I'm assenting to the need to be saved. But yet at this point, you're not yet fully saved. You can assent or agree you need to be saved and not yet be saved. So you can have the knowledge you need to be saved, and you can have the conviction you need to be saved and still not be saved. So there's a third aspect, and this is the, the biggest one. This is trust. This is where you personally place your faith in Christ. This is where you receive Him, where you rest in Him. This involves your will, believing with your will. Okay, I've given this illustration numerous, numerous times. I'll give it again. You probably heard it until you're blue in the face. And some of you that have been around Emmanuel is like, he's telling it again. Okay, this is the bungee jumping illustration. Okay, so some of you may have never heard this, bungee jumping. So I've never bungee jumped. If you have, you're a lunatic, and we can talk afterwards because it's crazy to be standing there on an edge of a bridge or whatever with a rubber band wrapped around you and you jump down into this devastating date with gravity if the rubber band doesn't snap back. So let's say that you're going to be bungee jumping. Okay, you stand on the edge of the bridge and they bring you the bungee jumping harness and you look at the harness and you think, that's a wonderful harness. I actually like the color of that harness. You know what? I think I'm going to try the harness on. So you try the harness on, you get everything together, you kind of pull on the bungee, you're all ready to go. I like this harness. I believe in this harness. I like the harness. And you just stand there on the edge of the cliff. And you, I believe the harness. It's a great harness. I think this harness can, can do its job. And you just stand there, and you stand there. Now, are you, you have knowledge of the harness, right? And you may even believe it can help you when you jump. But what if you're not really done yet? Have you truly trusted the harness? When do you trust the harness or the rubber band or whatever? When you what? Jump. 
It's only then that you're trusting in that. It's one thing to admire it, to put it on and stand there. You're not really trusting the harness until you jump. Same thing with Jesus. You can admire Jesus. You can have knowledge of Jesus. You can even believe you need Jesus. But it's not until you've placed your faith, you've rested in him, you've received him, you've trusted him, you've taken the leap, if you will, that you're actually trusting your life to him. You're placing your faith in him. So what I want you to remember when you're thinking about faith in Christ, is the acronym CAT, K-A-T. You've got to have knowledge, assent, and trust. All three of them have to be there. Or you can think about it this way, head, heart, and will. You've got to believe with your mind, you've got to be convinced in your heart, and then you've got to fully trust Him with your, with your will. Okay? And, and what you've got to believe is this, Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That verb to draw near means to rest in Jesus. He's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save completely, powerfully, those who rest in him, those who come to him. You've got to believe that he can save me and you come to him, you rest in him, you draw near to him and he's able to save you. And I also said earlier, James 2.19, there is a type of belief the demons have. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So let me ask the question, do the demons have cat? Knowledge, assent, trust. They have knowledge, right? But do they have assent and trust? No. They just have knowledge. You need all three. Now, J.C. Ryle has given a great definition of faith, of saving faith. So let me read his definition here. True belief in Christ is the unreserved trust of a heart convinced of sin in Christ as an all-sufficient Savior. It's the combined act of the whole man's head, conscience, heart, and will. It is often so weak and feeble at first that he who has it cannot be persuaded that he has it. And yet, like fire, or like life in the newborn infant, his belief may be real genuine, saving, and true. Notice how he combines head, conscience, heart, and will in an unreserved trust in Jesus. And you may not even know you have it, but like life in a newborn infant, it's there. It may be real small, but it's there. Now, what I want to make crystal clear and what I said earlier is that regeneration or being born again or being made alive precedes or comes before faith. Faith is the gift given to the elect by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we call it irresistible grace. Maybe you've heard that term before. When God chooses to call you, when God chooses to make you alive, when God chooses to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, when God chooses to do it, can you stop God from doing it? No. He's going to do it. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be powerful. And from your, from your vantage point, what's happening to you? You're just, I'm hearing the message. I've got knowledge. I've got assent. I've got trust. I'm placing my faith in Jesus. From your vantage point, you're doing it all, and you are placing your faith in Christ. But the reason you're doing it is because God's previously done the work in you to give you the ability to do it. Okay? So let me give you another quote from an old dead guy. J.C. Ryle, and this is B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield says this, The saving power of faith resides thus not in itself, 
not in faith, but in the Almighty Savior on whom it rests. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves us, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith. That's very important. It's not your faith that saves you. Jesus saves you. It's not the intensity of your faith that saves you, the amount of your faith, the commitment, your level. You can have the smallest amount of childlike faith, and if you're believing you're a sinner and that Jesus is the only way of salvation and you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and you're trusting in Him with your life and you may not know all the other things, that is saving faith because it's in Jesus, not in your faith. Sometimes we can guilt people into thinking, have you committed your life enough to Jesus? Have you given all of your life to Jesus? Have you surrendered everything to Jesus? Have you absolutely surrendered your entire life to Jesus? Now, what if I said that to you? What would you be thinking? No. I haven't surrendered my entire life to Jesus. And how much do I need to surrender? And when do I know I've surrendered enough? And how do I know if he's going to accept me if I don't reach this level of surrender? Let me say it differently. I may not have all the answers, but I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve hell, and I'm believing Jesus is the only way of salvation, and he died on the cross, and he rose again, and I know that my faith is in him, and I may not have it all together, but I'm resting, and I'm receiving Jesus as Savior. Are you saved? doesn't matter how quote-unquote, committed or surrendered you are because is it your faith or your commitment or your surrender that saves you? Or is it Jesus? Is it your faith and level of faith and intensity of faith or the object of your faith? It's the object of your faith, Jesus. So I want to encourage you that sometimes in your life you may feel like, I don't have this great faith. I don't have this intense faith. I'm not all sold out for Jesus. I'm not on fire for Jesus. I'm barely hanging on. Well, God doesn't love you more when you're awesome for Christ, and He doesn't love you less when you're barely hanging on. Jesus' love for you is constant because He's the object of your faith, not your faith. If you based how Jesus loved you on your faith, it would be pretty depressing because anybody's faith like way up here all the time? Where's our faith usually? Like this, right? So you can have weak faith and still be assured that God loves you because it's, the object of your faith is Jesus, not, not you. All right? So faith. That's the first aspect of conversion, saving faith. It's a resting, it's a receiving, it's an accepting, it's a trusting in the person and work of Jesus alone for your salvation. It's not working, it's not striving, it's a gift of God given to you where you you, you, you receive him as he's freely offered to you in the gospel. So any questions on faith? I'm going to stop and get a drink of water here. Any questions on faith? All right. The second aspect of conversion involves repentance. This is where some churches don't talk about repentance. They just talk about faith. But they, they go together. They're separate. They're distinct. Repentance is not faith, and faith is not repentance, but they go together. So what exactly is genuine repentance? So is it penance like in the Catholic Church? 
Is it like a one-time action? What is it? Well, in Mark's gospel, it's the very first thing that Jesus preaches. So in Mark 1, 14-15, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So Jesus comes preaching the gospel. And what's his message? Jesus is preaching. He's proclaiming the gospel. And what's he saying? What's his message? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what does Jesus tell us to do? Repent and believe. Repent and believe in the gospel. So there are two different things. Believe is different than repent. Repent's different. Believe, but they're both there, right? Because Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. What's the last thing Jesus said? And we'll get to this actually, I promise you, in a few weeks we're going to finish Luke on Sunday mornings. What's the last thing in Luke Jesus tells his followers to do? In Luke 24, 47. He said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance... And forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So what are they supposed to go out and preach? Repentance. And you see them doing that in the book of Acts. So Paul in Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Do you guys know October 31st is Reformation Day? Americans celebrate Halloween on that day, but it's the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church in 1517. And the very first word that Martin Luther posted on there, so that there's 95 theses, like 95 statements. So statement number one of what Martin Luther that's launched the Protestant Reformation. He said, the first sentence is, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, in saying repent and believe the gospel, meant that the whole life of a Christian to be an act of repentance. So, you should always be repenting. So what is repentance? What, what, what does the biblical word repentance mean? What does it mean to repent? Well, in Greek, there's two words. One is, the first word's metanoio. Or metanoio, for the verb version. And this means to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought or attitude about sin and righteousness. So, really, what the word metanoia or metanoio means, it's, it means a change in mind. Remember knowledge, ascent, trust? your mind begins to change about who you are and about who God is. I have to be real careful when I say this, a mind shift. It's a, it's a changing of your mind that God does in your heart that brings about a totally different way of understanding. So it's an inward change. To repent in turn means to have an inward change of heart and mind that results in an outward confession of faith and trust. Okay, Thomas Watson has a really great definition. He's got a whole book on repentance. Of course, he was a Puritan, and this was written, I think, in the 1600s. So, but let me give you um, Thomas Watson's. Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. You're inwardly humbled. You're inwardly changed. It's an inward act. It's a change of mind that goes on on the inside, but it results in an outward change.
that people can notice. Let me give you a quote from Spurgeon, what he has to say about repentance. He says this, To repent does mean a change of mind, but then it is a thorough change of the understanding and all that's in the mind so that it includes an illumination, an illumination of the Holy Spirit, and I think it includes a discovery of sin and a hatred of it without which there can be no genuine repentance. We must not, I think, undervalue repentance. It's a blessed grace of God, the Holy Spirit, and it is necessary unto salvation. So what is repentance? It's a change of mind, but let's just kind of, let's dig deeper and let's kind of define repentance tonight. Let's talk about marks or characteristics or aspects of genuine repentance. Okay, so what, what, what does it mean if you're repenting? How, how do you know you're doing that? So number one, repentance involves an acute awareness of sin. You're under strong conviction of your personal sin. So let's turn to Acts chapter 2, and let's look at the first Christian sermon. Peter's preaching at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has fallen like tongues of fire. Peter's bold. He stands up, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He preaches a message. He uses a lot of Old Testament quotations to support the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's predominantly addressing the Jewish audience in Jerusalem, the Jewish men predominantly and and the the people in Jerusalem that put Jesus to death. So let's pick up in verse 26. I'm sorry, verse 36. Let all the house, this is is like the end of his sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Notice the the second person, you crucified. He's Lord in Christ. God has made him Lord in Christ. You crucified him. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were cut to the heart. So repentance involves being cut to the heart that you're a sinner. This deep inward grieving. Now notice that Peter didn't have to extend an invitation and dim the lights and sing just as I am for 15 stanzas and who wants to come down to the front? Did he do any of that? What did the people say? After he finished his sermon, the people said, what do we do? What do we do? <clears throat> and Peter says, repent. Repent. Martin Luther again gives this great definition of repentance. He says, in repentance, there must be a deep hurt if the old man is to be put off. When lightning strikes a tree or a man, it does two things at once. It rends the tree and swiftly slays the man but it also turns the face of the dead man in the broken branches of the tree itself towards heaven. Okay, so what happens when you get hit by lightning? You fall back. And Martin Luther says, that's kind of what repentance is. Jesus, the law or the, the message of your sin comes at you and it knocks you down. And you fall down. But where are you facing? You're facing heaven and you realize, oh, I need to trust in Jesus. I've been knocked down by my sin I don't need to despair. There's an answer. 
It's Jesus. I'm looking up towards my Savior. So number one, it's an acute awareness of sin, but also repentance involves a godly sorrow for sin. Now notice I said godly sorrow. There is such a thing as worldly sorrow. There's a difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse is, I'm really upset I got caught. Or remorse is, man, I don't want to have to live with these consequences of getting caught or dealing with my sin. That's not repentance. That's, not, that's worldly sorrow. So Psalms uh, 38, 18 says, I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for my sin. And then Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into what? Repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's godly grief and there's worldly grief. John Calvin said this. He said, By godly sorrow, we tremble not only at the punishment for sin, but hate and abhor the sin because we know it's displeasing to God. You're not just sorry that you're getting punished, but you hate sin because it's sin. Remember Judas? He felt remorse, but did he repent? He, went, he was sad enough to go hang himself, but he never repented. It was remorse. It was worldly sorrow. Esau was remorseful that he sold his birthright and gave the blessing to Jacob, but he was not repentant. The writer of Hebrews tells us that. Hebrews 12, 16-17. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He was remorseful, but he wasn't repentant. And another aspect of repentance, and it's a lifelong thing. It's a lifelong turning from sin. You don't just repent once. You're always repenting. I love Isaiah 55, 7. It's a great passage of Scripture. Let the wicked forsake his way. That's repentance. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now notice what Isaiah says there. Repenting means turning from two things. Your ways, your actual behavior, and two, your thoughts, your attitudes. You turn from these to the Lord, and what do you find? He will abundantly pardon. You find tremendous forgiveness. Joel 2.13. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Return to the Lord. Let your heart be broken. And then... Luke 3.8 says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist. And then 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they themselves report concerning to us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God 
from idols to serve the living and true God. That's repentance. You're turning from idols. Whatever those idols may be, you're, so, so repentance means I'm doing a 180 degree turn. Like, these are my idols, this is my life, this is my sin. I'm turning inwardly from that, and I'm turning in faith towards Jesus. And then Acts 3, 19 through 20, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the appointed Christ for you, Jesus. It's times of refreshing would come when you repent. Let me give you another Spurgeon quote. I fear that some people fancy they've repented when they were first converted and that therefore they're done with repentance. But it is not so. The higher the faith, the deeper the repentance. The saint most ripe for heaven is the one most aware of his shortcomings. Now, we're talking about the order of salvation tonight. And maybe you've never thought about this, but it's very, very important. So let's ask the question. What comes first in the order of salvation? Does repentance come first? Or does faith come first? Is it synonymous? Are they the same thing or are they different? What comes first? Let me just take a vote here. What comes first? Does faith come first or repentance come first? Heather says faith. Anybody want to agree with Heather? Yeah, faith comes first. We are saved by faith. We are justified by faith alone. Okay? So what I'm going to say it this way is, repentance is a fruit or an outflow of faith. They're both there, but faith is first logically and theologically. So there's a great book by Sinclair Ferguson called The Whole Christ, and he quotes um, Thomas Boston, who is a Puritan, but basically Thomas Boston says this, quoted by Ferguson in his book, Christ should be presented in all the fullness of his person and work. Faith then directly grasps the mercy of God in him and as it does so, the life of repentance is inaugurated as its fruit. So I think of it this way. Faith comes first, both logically and theologically, and then repentance is a fruit of faith. It's an outflow. You're not saved by repentance per se. You're saved by faith, but repentance has to be there. And I'm going to unpack that. So Sometimes it's kind of confusing in the Bible because you'll see both terms used at the same time. So sometimes we see repentance, sometimes we see faith. Let me just kind of show these to you. So like, for example, repentance. Sometimes you'll see repentance being the only thing mentioned. So in Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. It doesn't say believe for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. It says repent. So in that passage, you've got repent. Okay, Acts 2, 38. We just looked at this one in Acts where Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Okay, so those are some verses that talk about just repent. It doesn't have the word faith in them. Now, there's other verses that have faith but don't have repent. 
you know these ones are probably more popular. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever repents and believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Is that what it says? Is repent in John 3.16? No, it's believes. So John 3.16, one of the famous passages of Scripture, just merely has believes. Now, it's interesting. On your sheet of paper, can you see Acts 17.30 still? What does Paul say? He commands all people everywhere to repent. Okay, so Paul called them to repent. Okay, let's, in Acts 17.34, just four verses down, you find out the response that Paul received when he told them to repent. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now you would think that Luke would say in Acts 17.34, some men joined him and repented. Because what did Paul say? The times of ignorance God overlooked, he commands all people everywhere to repent. But the response is, some believed. So which, which, which is it? Did they repent or did they believe? Well, Paul told them to repent, and they believed. So that gets confusing because both are there. Now, it even gets more confusing when both terms are used together. And we've looked at that earlier, Jesus. So some scriptures have repent. Some scriptures just have faith. Some have them both together. So Mark 1.15 the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see both of them there. Okay, Acts 20, 21. Testifying to both Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. So you got both there, right? Okay, so how do you understand this? Are you saved by repenting? Or are you saved by believing? Or are you saved by both? Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it faith? Okay. Let me kind of give you a... Um, an explanation. There is a literary term, and I don't expect you to remember it. It's called a synecdoche. And you're like, what's that's not, I thought that? Was a, I thought that was a city in New York. No, that's synecdoche. Synecdoche is where the Bible takes two terms that are different, but when you combine them together, it gives you the whole package. So, like, for example, God created the heavens and the earth. Are heavens and earth different? Is the heavens the same thing as the earth? No. But are they together? Does, does it kind of describe the whole package of God creating everything? Okay. Repentance and faith is like a synecdoche. They're different, but they go together as a package. And faith goes first in that package, and repentance is the outflow of the faith. So you, you really have to have them both. So the historical protestant understanding of the logical and theological order of conversion is that faith comes first and then repentance is a fruit of saving faith so let me say it this way <clears throat> where there is true saving faith there will always be genuine repentance and where there's genuine repentance there will always be saving faith if you're so let me let me say it a different way you are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And if you have faith in Christ, it will be accompanied by repentance. And if you are repenting, it's first because you had faith in Christ. So they go together. It's a repentant faith and a, and a faith that repent, faithful repent. Yeah, I guess like something like that. <clears throat> so let me give you J.C. Ryle again. I, if you guys notice, I quote a lot from J.C. Ryle. On Sunday mornings, um, you're like, who is this dude? He's always talking about Bishop J.C. Ryle. 
So back in the late 1800s, he was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. He was the um, pastor of the Anglican Church, the Church of England in Liverpool, which I like because that's where the Beatles are from. So he was the first Beatle. No, I'm just joking. He was from Liverpool. The Bishop of Liverpool, a lot of his writings are just so clear and concise, and I really liked what he says, even though it was written in the late 1800s. But let me just kind of give you a quote from Bishop J.C. Ryle. He says this, True repentance is never alone in the heart of any person. It always has a companion, a blessed companion. It is always accompanied by lively faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wherever faith is, there's repentance. Wherever repentance is, there's always faith. Just as you cannot have sun without light, or ice without cold, or fire without heat, or water without moisture, you will never find true faith without true repentance, and you'll never find true repentance without lively faith. So they, they both are part of conversion, but faith comes first. You are justified, you're accepted by Christ by resting and receiving in Him. And by the way, faith and repentance are both gifts. It's not like faith is a gift and this repentance is something you produce. Faith and repentance are both gifts. Faith is something God gives you that you exercise. Repentance is something God works in you that you actually end up repenting. Now, I want to give some cautions tonight. Because in how we preach the gospel and how we do evangelism and how you share the gospel, there can be some cautions. There can be some errors that we would want to avoid to make sure we're clear. Okay, what are we not saying and what should we be saying when it comes to repentance and faith? Okay, so let's talk about some cautions in evangelism and preaching. We need to avoid two errors. So let me give you the first error that's pretty common. The first is preaching no repentance, which is called cheap grace or easy believism. Okay. You often see this a lot in our culture today. From the seeker-sensitive movement to the Joel Osteen-type watered-down gospel, it's basically this, hey, you know, you're okay, God kind of winks at sin, try Jesus on. There's never talk about repentance, there's no talk about sin, there's no talk about the holiness of God, there's no talk about hell or the wrath of God. There's really no, basically it's just like, hey, you can just kind of, Accept Jesus as your Savior and live however you want. As long as you ask Him into your heart, you're good. There's this kind of no talking about sin, repentance, or the need um, to understand the holiness of God. So that's one error, is to not talk about repentance at all. Okay? That's easy believism. That's non-lordship salvation. It's basically saying, you can take Jesus as your Savior, but you don't really need Him as your Lord. Just basically, you know, ask Him into your heart, and then you can pretty much live however you want. Because after all, you're once saved, always saved. You got your fire insurance from hell. You're going to go to heaven anyway, so just, you know, live however you want. That's, that's one error. Preaching faith, but not repentance. Okay, but there's a second error that's just as dangerous. The second error is to add some type of, and I've addressed this earlier, to add some type of intensity or subjective requirement on top of faith, which can lead to legalism. Okay? So there is a legalistic way that you can actually make somebody add an extra requirement on top of faith alone to get somebody to, to, to place their faith in Christ. So the first error is we're not going to talk about repentance at all, easy believism. The second error is more like legalism. We're going to add some things onto. Now, at first glance, you're going to say, oh yeah, we, we know what those are. Those are like works. We're not saved by works. 
So, you, you know, you're not saved by doing the Ten Commandments. You're not saved by being good. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the preaching where you hear things like this. You, in order to be saved, it's not resting and receiving in Christ. It's you've got to absolutely surrender and commit all of your life to Jesus as, you know, absolutely commit and surrender your life to Him with this intensity. Well, that's not necessarily, that's adding something on top of faith alone. What is faith? It's resting and receiving. If you add a level or subjective intensity or some type of like radical commitment on top of that, then who's to say you've done enough? So this teaches falsely that we are saved by our level or amount of repentance instead of trusting and receiving Christ alone as the sole object and assurance of our salvation. For example, what if I were to tell somebody who was struggling with, let's pick a sin, they're struggling with lying. And I say to them, in order for you to be saved, you better get to a level where you've repented enough from lying, and then when you've repented enough from lying, then you've repented enough to be able to be saved because you've repented enough. That's a false teaching. How are you saved? By repenting enough of lying? Or are you saved by, I am a liar and I'm trusting in Jesus? And he changes my heart and I'm going to gradually stop lying and I'm probably going to struggle with it, but I don't need to reach a certain level of like not lying before God's going to accept me. Does that, does that make sense what I'm saying here? So here's the fear. So, so it kind of goes the other way. People that kind of promote this type of teaching they, they, they're fearing that they don't want to water down the gospel. Okay? They, don't, they don't want to water down the demands of the gospel, quote-unquote. They don't want to um, have false converts. So they want to make sure you know the cost of being a Christian and you know what you're getting into and you know what the cost is. And so they're going to add terms like surrender. You've got to surrender your life. Or you've got to absolutely commit. Or you need to repent to a certain level and what they're doing is they're trading in these terms instead of faith alone. <clears throat> so there's this first type of adding extra qualifications or intensity or levels to your faith in order to be saved. And I would ask you the question. Let me just ask you the question. How much is enough? How much is enough? That's the first question. The second question is who determines how much is enough? How much is enough? Enough is I'm resting and receiving with empty hands Jesus. There's nothing on top of faith besides resting and receiving in Christ. If somebody comes to you and says you haven't repented enough in order to be saved, or you're not intense enough to be saved, or you haven't absolutely committed your life enough to be saved, they are legalistically adding a qualification on top of salvation besides resting and receiving. Because you would look at that person and say, well, how much do I need to do? And then it's usually their level of what they think you should do. You understand what I'm saying? Now, I understand the motive. The motive is we don't want to have false converts. We want people to know exactly what they're getting into. We want to make sure there's commitment. And those things will come. Because if there is true faith, will there be true repentance? Yes. Now, 
The other mistake is people say, I don't want to be that legalistic. I don't want to you know, go that far. So they go the other way. They don't want to offend sinners. You can make the other mistake of not calling them to repentance and showing their sin before a holy God. So in this type of preaching, there's no level of commitment or amount of repentance or intensity that merits our salvation. So what I want to do is got a few more minutes here. I'll, I'll finish. So our faith is in Christ alone. Your faith is not in your faith. Your repentance is not in your amount of repentance. Your salvation does not depend upon the intensity of your commitment or the level of your surrender. Faith is a gift of God whereby you come with empty hands and you rest and you receive in Christ alone. And the fruit of that is repentance will be there. It's a change of heart. It's a change of mind that demonstrates itself in a changed life. Now listen to what Isaiah says here in Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Okay, this is God. Okay, God is acting like the ancient Culligan man. Okay, so in that ancient city of Israel, in that ancient culture, they did not have Culligan or bottled water, so they would have water salesmen. They'd come in on their donkey, they'd have these jugs, and they'd go in the marketplace and they would say, come, come buy water from me. You're thirsty. You're parched. Come buy water. I've also got some milk. You've got to pay me. So they were familiar with this image of a water salesman asking people to come, and then, but they had to pay him. You're not getting anything from free. I came all the way this way, and I'm gonna, you're going to have to pay for the water. You're going to have to pay for the milk. Okay, God takes on this image, but I want you to notice what God says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he has no money. Come and buy. Well, how can you buy if you don't have money? What's the only qualification God gives for you to come to him? You've got to be thirsty and you've got to be poor. You've got to be thirsty and you've got to have nothing. So what's the image God's saying here? You can't contribute anything to your salvation. When you come to Jesus, you come thirsty, you come needy, you come helpless, you come with nothing but your sin, and you come and God gives it to you what? He gives you himself, Christ, freely. He Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus gives you himself as the living water, free of charge. The only thing that you need to understand is your need for him. Think about how insulting it would be to Jesus if Jesus said, come to me, and then you like pull out a $50 bill and try to pay him. Jesus would be like, um, the $50 is not going to do anything close to what I paid for on the cross, so put your money back. I, mean, I don't think he would say it like that, but I'm just like, your money's no good here. Your efforts are no good here. You come sinful, you come broken, you come poor, you come thirsty, and God doesn't require you to purchase anything. You just come and receive it freely. Now, we sing a song here in Emmanuel often called Come Ye Sinners. I'm going to put the words up here because the next time we sing this, I don't know when Doug's going to plan it again, but it really 
coming sinners kind of get, gets this whole idea of what faith is. So it says this. Come ye sinners, O come ye needy, come and welcome God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. You see where you hear that from what we just saw in Isaiah 55? Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. If you wait around to come to Jesus until you're better, <laughs> you're never going to come because you're never going to be better. Jesus came to call the, right, call the sinners, not the righteous. Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. Don't, all Jesus requires of you is for you to understand your need of him. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. I'm coming to Christ. I'm resting in Christ. I'm receiving Christ. As he's freely offered to me in the gospel, I have nothing to offer. God gives me the gift of faith. I come humble. I come repentant. I come to Christ. So, 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. It's Paul giving his testimony of how he came to the city of Corinth. He says, When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I can't persuade you. I can't talk you into it. It's got to be the power of God working in your heart to give you that faith, to give you that conviction. So let's ask the question one more time as we close tonight. How does God convert a sinner? Let's summarize it with these statements. God graciously sends the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to the world through the preaching of the gospel, the external call. There's a general outward call that goes indiscriminately to all people. There's also an internal and effectual call that specifically goes to the elect. We don't know who the identity of the elect are, so we preach to everybody. But if you have been chosen before the foundation of the world, God's going to make sure in His sovereign timetable that that effectual internal call goes to you. And so, since you are spiritually unable to come to faith due to your deadness and sin, and enslavement to sin, God must sovereignly change your heart through regeneration and grant you the gifts of repentance and faith. God has to overcome that deadness. He has to give you that gift. And once God gives you that gift, once the Spirit comes and makes you alive, once He regenerates you or causes you to be born again or takes out your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh, whatever word you want to use, once He renews your will, grants you the gift of repentance and faith, then you freely come to Christ. You freely come to Christ because you're 
bondage to sin has been liberated by Jesus in that call. Now, this is why when we get to heaven, and even now, we say, as Jonah said, when he was belched up out on the ground from the, from the big fish, Jonah 2.9, salvation belongs to the Lord. We don't save ourselves, we don't call ourselves, we don't choose ourselves, and even the faith that we had to place in Jesus was not of ourselves, repentance was not of ourselves. When we get to heaven, we won't, even, we won't be able to boast. All we can say is salvation belongs to the Lord. And we'll humbly fall on our faces before Jesus and, and give him the thanks and praise that he alone deserves for saving us. Okay, we've got seven minutes left for questions, comments, or snide remarks on faith and repentance. Does she have a question? Or is she just tickling her? Yes, Marlo, uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, the question is, Judas didn't feel conviction or Judas wasn't remorseful because Jesus prayed for Peter. Remember, Peter, Jesus prayed for Peter, but he didn't pray for Judas. And also, whether we like it or not, Judas wasn't chosen. He was the son of perdition. And so he was predestined to do what he did, even though he did it freely. And then he dealt with the consequences of what he did by not repenting, but being remorseful. So, so yes, you're correct. Judas? Yeah. Well, let me say it this way. He did not repent because repentance is a gift of God. And the gift of God is only given to those whom God's going to give. And so God did not give Judas the gift of repentance. And you can go back and say, well, the reason Judas didn't get the gift of repentance is because he wasn't called, and he wasn't called because he wasn't predestined. That's kind of a, yeah. His sole, pur- I don't, yeah, his sole purpose was, to, the, the scriptures pr- prophesied that there would be a son of perdition that would come and his sole purpose would be to betray Jesus as the fulfillment of scripture. And it just so happened that Judas Iscariot was the one that God chose. Now, it wasn't like Judas didn't want to do it and God made him. Judas freely did what he wanted to do because he was in league with the devil and that was just what he he followed his desires and his natures to do what he did. It wasn't like God was holding a gun to his head and said, you're going to betray Jesus. It was out of his heart, sinful heart, that he did freely what he wanted to do. But he was, he did it because Satan entered him and also because God ordained that that would happen, allowed it to happen. Yeah, yeah. And that's specific with Judas. We can't say that about every, that was a specific situation with Judas in redemptive history that doesn't, yeah, but you, He's the only person in the Bible that said that Satan entered into him. I mean, Satan has tempted people, but not entered into. So, yeah. Any other questions? Any questions online? So next week, we're going to talk about justification. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Now, why didn't I do justify tonight? Because you're justified by faith. You've got to have faith first before you're justified. So you're justified by faith. So next week we're going to talk about what does it mean to be justified by faith alone. So we're talking about the order of salvation. So once you place your faith in Christ, 
God justifies you. What does that mean? And why is that so important? That's what we're going to talk about next week. Okay? All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the gift of faith and the gift of repentance you've given to us. Jesus, we want to rest in you. We want to receive you. We want to come to you as the living water and find that um, source of refreshment and source of salvation. And Lord, help us to always remember that um, it is a free gift and that uh, we are saved by grace alone and that there's nothing we contributed to it. So Lord, help us be humble, help us be dependent, and help us to always be thankful for all that you've done for us. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.